over 100,000 years ago, it may have been advantageous for early human beings to be hyper aware of what other agents and what other living things were around them. This may have made us uh, more aware to snakes in the grass or uh, potentially dangerous or, or potentially beneficial animals in the water. Uh, and, and it may have, in fact, served early man to be hyper aware of, again, the agents and the awarenesses around him. Now, in the future here, we find ourselves in a world where with, between the Internet of Things and our phones and the artificial intelligence is being developed, uh, where the, the world is in and of itself more aware. And our guest today, uh, Eric Davis, who's an award-winning journalist and author and a speaker in the San Francisco area, he's author of a book by the, uh, the name of Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. A lot of his uh, own work deals with the intersection of the technical uh, and the mystical. And he speaks to how a lot of our uh, initial gut reactions to artificial intelligence, whether that's fearful or whether that's optimistic, often spring from evolutionary or from cultural reasons. And today, we Eric is nice enough to, to chip away at some of those underlying cultural stories or some of those underlying biological impetus that might bring us to have a certain kind of a reaction to technology when we first become exposed to it. And he speaks a little bit to how that might influence how we guide technology into the future. Very interesting uh, intellectual conversation here with Eric in today's episode. So without further ado, we'll jump right in. Now, Eric, I, I know that your domain of focus is really sort of the, the cultural uh, side of where the mystical and spiritual intersects with, with technology. Um, and, and we had spoken a little bit off mic about the fact that our templates around how to deal with other kinds of sentience than human sentience really aren't about robots and AI, they're, they're about older cultural and mystical kind of templates that get conjured forward and that we use as analogies for our technologies today. What are those? Shed a little bit of light on that for the, for the listeners. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting problem in, uh, in re religious anthropology is that it, is you, if you go all over the world, you find the same kinds of things. You find ghosts, you find uh, spirits of, the, of nature, uh, you find God forms. And this has been a really interesting question. Why, why is there so much consistency in, in all these different human cultures? And one of the, the, the uh, answers that some more you know, cognitive uh, science-oriented anthropologists offer is that uh, we have a sort of uh, character in our minds that, that you could think of as agency detection. Um, and the basic idea is that uh, in terms of uh, natural selection, it's always better to be a little bit more hypersensitive to the possible presence of agents in the environment, like a tiger, uh, than to be sort of dull-witted and unimaginative about what might lurk behind that forest or in that cloud or, or in that you know, gap in the earth, in the bubbling earth. In other words, there's, there's a way in which we have a tendency to, to encounter uh, or to perceive our environment as being ensouled. And if you look, uh, you know, historically in terms of where do all of our, all human cultures come from, they come from an enchanted world, a world where this full of spirits, uh, whether it's spirits of nature, spirits of a, of a particular location, um, spirits uh, in dreams, in altered states of consciousness, uh, spirits that are in touch with, or that, that shamans are in touch with, or other sort of uh, religious specialists who can interact with maybe the more esoteric or invisible world of specters or gods. And this is just a pervasive part of human 
culture and consciousness, and it's been there for the vast majority of our uh, lifetimes. And then, you know, without going through the whole story about science and rationality and the disenchantment of the world, you know, we now find ourselves in a very peculiar situation where our environment is becoming very, well, lively. Isn't it? Uh, and it's becoming lively in a variety of enigmatic and uncanny ways, even for specialists, let alone for the vast majority of us who, who know very little about the, the sort of technical backbone of the uh, 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 applications, technologies, uh, interactive uh, kiosks, et cetera, et cetera, that we deal with. And so uh, because things are changing so quickly, there is a lot of enigma. There is a lot of unknown. There is a lot of confusion and even a bit of chaos in our fundamental sense of where intelligence lies, where consciousness sits. Is it in our heads? Is it only in other human beings? Yeah. Or is it increasingly distributed through our networks of technologies? And, and my sense is that as we move into that environment more and more fully, that we almost inevitably lean back uh, on some of these older, you can think of them as fictions, these older templates uh, of seeing the world as ensouled or enchanted. And this is certainly the case in our fictions, the fictions we tell uh, about new technology, science fiction, uh, fantasy, horror, all of it. We have this sense of this kind of disturbing but also marvelous world where uh, objects and non-human environments become ensouled, become sort of animated, begin to, as it were, uh, talk back. Yes. Uh, and, and, and my basic approach to this is that whatever is happening with the technology, whatever we can argue about in terms of, uh, of science, in terms of at uh, what point does consciousness happen, at what point can we speak of a genuinely sentient uh, a program, that issues are going, uh, are, are going on alongside an ongoing cultural engagement uh, with new technologies in which the, you know, all of these fictions, all of these templates, all of these stories are in some sense up for grabs. Yeah, and it, well, such such is culture, I suppose, right? I mean, it's not, uh, you know, like the, 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 the funny shorts that they wear in Bavaria uh, didn't, didn't like fall from the Bavarian clouds, right? Like there was, there was some people that wore funny shorts, and then that became like the shtick, and now they still wear them, you know? Um, and so presumably some degree of how we perceive technologies and, and, and uh, you know, our cultural perception of different kinds of technology will sort of be made up as we go along, just as it sort of already has, right? I mean, the, the Japanese have a, a different conception and perception of, of robots in all shapes and forms than we do in terms of their validity and respect and, and whatever else, and, it, and we'll, it sounds like we'll form those same ideas. It's rather curious just to touch on something you had brought up, our natural propensity, and that maybe from what you're articulating, it might have been uh, uh, beneficial in a Darwinian sense, in, a, in an adaptive sense, for us to believe the world to be ensouled, for us to to um, perceive of personhood and maybe perceive of potential personhood in the things around us, because that may have made us a little bit more skeptical about, like you said, you know, what might be hiding under that rock, what might be in the dark, uh, what what might be coming out of this water, or whatever the case may be. It sounds like our, potentially our our our, um, I hate to say, it's not anthropomorphism, but, but our perception of a relating, living thing uh, that we conjure, even when it isn't there, ghosts, whatever you had mentioned, may be sort of an, an adaptive uh, evolutionary perception. 
That's a lot of people will, will put that forward as why we still have those those tendencies. So some, curious. Some people will, of course, say well, we, that's why we should get rid of them. I tend to be a little bit more conservative in the sense that I think it's very difficult to get rid of them, uh, and that one way or another, uh, a, a wide we're all sort of ghosted in different ways uh, <laughs> by these older uh, uh, templates, and then you can see that very much. In, if you look at popular culture, if you look at the way that stories are being told, fictions are being told, the way in which you know toys enter into a child's world, the way in which we are sold various uh, forms of machine intelligence, we can see the way that certain very much older stories about how uh, uh, sentience can be dis- could be distributed through non-human objects is being sort of played with. I mean, one one example that. Uh, really struck me recently was there. There's a series of ads for um, Schwab's Intelligent Profiles, which is this sort of automated, uh, you know, uh, pseudo AI uh, investment profile um, uh, agent that you will, you know, that you go to Schwab to get get the data from. They're not advertising. Hey, we have a friendly face. Come over and meet Joe. Joe's going to help you figure out your investments. Instead, we get this weird sort of a, a very, it's a, a uses the color blue. This this nice bright blue background, and this kind of un- androgynous uh, computer voice it introduces itself as the intelligent uh, uh, profile machine, and, <laughs> and and it really struck me because it's like that's something that in some sense we are ready to hear. We're ready to be told that some device, some application is artificially intelligent. It is going to make decisions better. And we would be able to make them ourselves. And what I'm sort of insisting on is that whether or not that's true in a technical sense, whether or not we can say, oh, that really is, uh, has achieved a a degree of facility that we should really just think of as an intelligent machine, uh, that before we even get to that technical question, we're already in a realm of images, of stories, of representations that are being fed to us and that we're telling to ourselves that help buffer and organize this very strange world that we now find ourselves in through stories about other kinds of entities that have other kinds of intelligence that we can nonetheless communicate with. Huh. And, and so um, uh, let's, let's speak a little bit to that, Eric. You know, what are some of these, you, know, you had spoken of the fact that, you know, we go through religious anthropology, we, we discover ghosts, we discover gods, we discover, I don't know, I imagine there's many patterns, you know, elements, maybe dragons, maybe Lord knows. Um, no pun intended, uh, is with respect to what's, where, where those overlaps happen, you know, you talked about the investment, uh, you know, this investment entity that again, introduces itself as this sort of, you know, potentially like omnipotent, uh, investing engine of glory and, and, and wonder. Um, what, what sort of tales are these overlapping with? What are the, what are the, the, the older mythical and, and, maybe even, you know, Darwinian evolutionary sort of impetus within us that, that this actually resonates with? You know, what are some examples of those old templates being reconjured in our technological world? Flesh out a few of those. I'm very much sure. interested in this. Sure. I, well, you, I'm going to spin off of a, of a verb you used there, conjured. And, and really probably the, the, the most obvious place to look for it is in, is in magic. And, and by magic, I mean sort of esoteric magic, uh, high magic, angel magic. 
So if you look back at in, in our history, you find lots of characters who are interested in mathematics, interested in what we would now call science, and but were also interested in other things. Uh, uh, what they might still think of as being natural science, but that we would recognize as being something more uh, like religion or specifically uh, magic. You know, a figure like John Dee, who's very well known for people who are interested in these things, uh, an Elizabethan mage uh, around, you know, around the time of Queen Elizabeth, who was a polymath, who was a mathematician, uh, but existed at a point where the difference between mathematics and what we now think of as magic hadn't been made yet. That's even, to some degree, true even with, with Newton, who's a generation yep. uh, or so later. Uh, and one of the things that magicians like John Dee did is that they used elaborate formal codes uh, uh, of sigils, of numerical relationships, of linguistic relationships, uh, in order to ritually encounter other forms of intelligence that they could get information from. Um, and this uh, sort of mode of high magic, the magician calling up a, a daemon and, and asking them to do something for them or, or calling up an angel and asking for information is a really powerful cultural template that gets reproduced century after century after century into the modern era. Uh, you know, into into the resurgence or the occult revival in the late 19th century, and and then in various points uh, in the 20th century. Even though it's a it's a very much of a of a subcultural world, a minor world, uh, these things very much uh, continue. And so, what you have there is this idea that through code, some kind of logical operation, some sort of uh, linguistic intervention into the possibility uh -huh, space that yeah. exists between language and mathematics, there, the, the space is open. There's something there. There's some possible relationship <laughs> to information. So that when we see a you know investment advisor with a weird spooky blue light and it's speaking to us in this kind of you know charismatic but but weirdly non-human voice, there's kind of a sense of okay, there's something sort of magic here. Uh, and we can see many, many ways, both in advertising, in, uh, in computer games intensively, uh, and in some of the guiding metaphors that people use for computational environments, for interfaces, that the language of magic, the language where, uh, the, the world where language makes things happen on their own, out of its own power, has a certain resonance with some of these more technical issues. So I'm not saying it's the same thing. It's really important to emphasize that. But I am saying that the resonance between these older ways of dealing with, let's call them non-corporeal intelligences, the resonances between those and the conditions we find ourselves in now are non-trivial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, with, with respect to, before we even get into, well, when you had mentioned, again, um, logical systems and some uh, correlation between language and numerical, you know, what have you. Obviously, this, this uh, you know, not to overuse the word conjures, but conjures the, the notions today of, of you know, uh, coding software, you know, putting something together that, that uh, does something, maybe in some way thinks um, that, that we've conjured together based on these combinations of numbers and letters and symbols that we've typed into the screen to, to build these entities. I suppose maybe in some sense that's a kind of modern alchemy, and I imagine that metaphor has been played out in more ways than I'm probably aware. Just to clarify, John D., who you referred to, is that D-E-E? -E? 
That is D-E-E. Okay, John D-E-E. That'll be an interesting name to Google. Now, I'm familiar with some of Newton's crossover into what we would now call sort of, uh, you know, tough to shake from the world of quackery. But but again, you know, what what better would he have known? I mean, he would he had to plow through all those frontiers uh, in, in some respects himself. Um, stand on the shoulders of giants, certainly, to, to quote uh, himself. But, but, uh, but uh, he, he may have not known what corridors would have a tangible yield and which wouldn't. In terms of John D. Uh, tapping into higher intelligences with these funny symbols, what was he actually doing? What, what was happening there? Did people believe he was speaking with some kind of demons or angels? What, what was going on with his story there, just to understand? Oh, uh, so, I mean, there were many, I mean, he, he, you know, some of the things were just, like, he would just, you know, write mathematical text. But in terms of his angelic conversations, um, he, uh, I guess you'd probably use the word channeled might be the best way, yeah. working with another individual, uh, he, uh, and using the imagination as well as um, a, a set of ritual tools that were inscribed with various symbols. Uh, he channeled a language which had its own, uh, sort of forms of letters and its own kind of structure, and it is recognizably semantically a language. And you, and with this language, he communicated with various angels. The amusing thing is he he spent a lot of time. Uh, he didn't really trust them very well, so he'd encounter one, and they'd be like, "Well, how do I know you're really who you say you are?" So there was a lot of like, you know, mystification. It was it was sort of a cyberpunk world even back then, where you weren't really sure what kind of agents you were you were dealing with. And that, and that's a, that's another really important kind of. Uh, a connection too is when you look at, at, at William Gibson's incredibly influential uh, view of cyberspace, this kind of science fictional, you know, concoction of his imagination that nonetheless went on and really inspired a lot of people early on to, and, and, con and continues to inspire people in terms of mapping uh, this sort of space, which which can conform to so many different. Uh, models uh, that we bring to it, that there is a kind of resonance there. And, you know, he also has his, his artificial intelligences split into, uh, you know, voodoo spirits. And it's a, it's a very strange kind of uh, resonant power. And you might, you know, hearing this stuff, you go, okay, whatever, that's just science fiction. That's not really the world we deal with. But that, I don't think that, that division is holding too well. Um, not only is the world seeming, seem and feel more like we're entering into a kind of war of different science fictions, but that science fiction itself, as a set of cognitive templates, as an aesthetic, as a, a, a sort of um, uh, a, an encouragement to engage with the future, that science fiction itself is being deployed and used by all sorts of actors in order to make sense of the world we find ourselves in. So it's, it's just getting harder and harder to exactly draw that line between fiction and the world that we are fabulating. Uh, yeah. So these fabulations take on a certain uh, uh, substantial uh, character. Yeah, it's it's it is a little bit. It's it's wild to 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 think about in some sense. I think you know isn't isn't um, fiction uh, doesn't that isn't that some sort of you know the popular fiction fiction that becomes rather popular within a culture isn't that in some way indicating what uh, futures we're drawing ourselves towards isn't that sort of a common imagination in some sense? And and I know that uh, we've had a lot of uh, great fiction authors uh, on the show, um, folks even like David Brin, who talks about fiction as being a way to potentially flesh out what might be sort of I think he used the the terms like the sand traps 
of different futures that maybe we wouldn't want to find ourselves in, you know, finding a certain set of circumstances that we can imagine ourselves in that, that might lead us down a wrong path uh, or, or lead us down a path that might be more beneficial if we came to a certain kind of decision. And it, and it seems like maybe unlike 80 years ago, when I'm sure there was some degree of rough science fiction, um, even if it wasn't known as a field, maybe now what you're getting at is that we're, we're sort of progressing and, and, and uh, transitioning so quickly forward that uh, science fiction and, and the, the, the world are, are sort of crissing and crossing in, in important ways. And it's difficult to discern, you know, what directions we're going to go into and what's already happened, never mind what might happen in the future. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very well said. And, and as a as a sort of historian of religion, it's a really important to emphasize that that also means that some of those fictions are religious fictions, meaning that uh, it's it's no accident that we've entered into an era where uh, people are taking seriously religious modes that are definitely invented. You know, so Jediism is a great example. Some people, uh, for for some people, it's just a joke. It's like a way of like, sure, I love Star Trek. I'll, I'll, I'll adopt these principles. But for other people, it, even if they start out just sort of playing with it, it might actually evolve into something they take quite seriously and begin to identify with. And we see a great deal of this kind of thing inside of, of the world of, of you know, uh, uh, role-playing games, uh, yeah. World of Warcraft, et cetera, et cetera, where there, there begin to be sort of religious dimensions to these fictions that we are using to inhabit or to... Uh, interface with a world that is becoming increasingly uh, both complicated and also available through these various uh, uh, sort of interfaces of the imagination. And and to to wrap that up as sort of the last question that we get into, um, what does this mean and imply as as we move forward into the future we're creating, which neither you nor I are inherently familiar with? Uh, but but uh, you know, as we begin interacting with more and more aware entities, maybe humanoid robots, uh, uh, different kinds of artificial intelligence, and, and a, um, a world of lively uh, gadgets and, and interconnected intelligence, um, what, what factors might we consider as we move forward into that world knowing what sorts of templates are going to be brought up, knowing, knowing uh, the fact that our understandings of some of these sorts of interactions with other entities are, are old, maybe ancient, maybe prehistoric in some sense, um, know, knowing that that is still within us, and that's how we're interpreting things today, how does that map forward into how you might think um, we're going to deal with a world of superintelligence, a world of humanoid robots and, and beyond human intelligence and things, things along those lines? What are the considerations to carry forward knowing that we have all that old stuff upstairs? Yeah, I would say that there's two 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 kind of sides to the the answer, and in some ways they might be I won't say contradictory, but moving in different directions. Um, the the first one is sort of the most kind of obvious one, which is the critical one. This means that we have to be aware, both when we're dealing with ourselves and when we're looking at social phenomena, that you that these kinds of maps, these kinds of modes, are going to be uh, out in the world. That we're going to find people responding to uh, machine intelligence, to super intelligence in a whole number of ways. Some of them are going to be drawing directly from 
these stories, whether they're demonic on the one hand, and so you get paranoia and conspiracy theory, and you get a whole sort of world of people who have a, a maybe even a violent neo-Luddite reaction to yeah. these things yeah, because yeah. they're seen as demonic and, and et cetera, et cetera. Or on the other side, uh, and this also in, this category also includes many scientists and technical people, you find a sort of utopianism or a kind of lack of criticality because there's a desire for some sort of intelligent agent so strongly that some of the kinks in the system might be ignored in the desire to finally draw attention to or embrace some form of machine intelligence or super intelligence. I mean, when you're, when you're asking, you, I know that you, you deal with a lot of transhumanist themes, and in a way this is unfair because it's a big topic, but, it, but it's important to, to stress from the perspective that I'm coming from, which is one about cultural history and religious history, the, the resonances, the similarities between the way in which a lot of transhuman uh, discourse imagines superintelligence and imagines the singularity. The, it's it's so obviously resonant and similar to many aspects of uh, religion, yeah. uh, of enthusiastic religion, of millenarian religion, of apocalyptic religion. That it's almost funny. Like it's just it's you can just line the two next to each other. Yep. And of course, the proponents of those things insist on that it's anything but that has nothing to do with that old world and those old myths which is true on a philosophical level in many ways, but as a cultural phenomenon, as a story that grabs people and takes us forward, those uh, more utopian or more uh, exuberantly uh, uh, sort of techno-futuristic models also resonate with some of these anthropological tendencies that we all have and that we should be critical of. So that's one answer, because yep. we need to be critical of these Indeed. things. But, but I think there's something else too, and this is where you know, I open my arms to the enigma. I open my arms to the to the uncanniness, to the to the mystery of what it would mean to encounter uh, a new form of superintelligence. That that encounter, the moral aspects of it, the ethical aspects of it, the the uh, uh, the imaginative aspects of it, in the in the strongest sense of the term, are going to raise some of these fundamental religious questions and philosophical questions, not just in terms of computationalism or the Turing test, et cetera, et cetera, but on a much deeper level in terms of how human beings, in some sense, define themselves with and against other kinds of others, whether they're animal others or they're spiritual others or they're natural others, maybe other kinds of human beings. And now we're increasingly facing mechanical others or algorithmic others, uh, uh, networked others, yeah. and that that place is a very uh, rich and, um, uh, how to say it, undetermined space uh, where I, I think that bringing in the kinds of questions that I'm, that I'm thinking about uh, really adds another d dimension uh, to the encounter. Indeed, I, I think, um, you know, we, I suppose... Uh We'll we'll have to we'll have to be open to the enigma because I think the enigma will happen to us either way, um, and it's interesting that you note you know the, the the overlap of religious sentiment and and what might be just really ancient monkey tribal stuff that's in our head in terms of our propensity towards being overly enthusiastic or overly antagonistic uh, towards these different kinds of others and notions of relatedness and power and what have you. Um, I I think that. Uh, it, it's 
you know, it's, as you'd mentioned, a lot of the folks that are the massive proponents of the technological development, and, and not to make this is not personal towards any individual at all, but but I think a lot of the time that they, it's really, or they would they would expound upon the fact that it's this is not about some resurgence of those tribal notions, but but invariably uh, to the folks that hear it, and invariably in the way that it's described, it it really seems to be those same tales told over again. And it sounds like in your eyes, um, the over-pessimism or the over-antagonism or the over-optimism and over-excitedness uh, uh, and maybe, um, again, just, just kind of dogmatic belief in, in the need for progress, both of those may in fact be these tribal or Darwinian tendencies that maybe we should look out and question a bit if we want to genuinely be open to the enigma, if we want to really interpret uh, the world as it is, as much as we can through these little senses that we got, maybe we'll, we'll have to peel back some cultural layers to see how we should really act as a government, how we should really act as a society. It sounds like maybe that's to some degree what you're getting at. Yeah, very much. Very, very well said. I, I try to I try to articulate, Eric. I'm not not quite as good as yourself, and don't have as as many articles and as many nice magazines as yourself. But I I did take that away as as a a lesson that you seem to propound, and I I I would I would believe exactly the same. And I think the cultural element is just one more facet of that grand understanding. And I'm glad that you were able to share a little bit of that with us today, Eric. Thank you so much for being here on Tech Emergence. Yeah, it was a blast. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.